for the past few weeks, we've been talking about how to simplify our lives. And today, we'll continue our series on that subject by looking at how to simplify our relational world. Yes, we can simplify our schedules and our finances and get our working world nice and aligned, but if we don't simultaneously focus on streamlining our interactions with other people, all the other parts of our life will fail to satisfy. I'd like to begin by looking at a few Proverbs. The Old Testament scriptures contains a book of Proverbs, and this is a collection of sayings about how to live wisely, mostly written by King Solomon, who was called the wisest man to ever live. I think you'll agree that he knows what he's talking about. But instead of reviewing these Proverbs in a traditional fashion, today I'd like to offer a few of them in reverse. For example, when you have resources that could help someone else, keep them to yourself. Don't share your stuff. Sharing stuff is bad. And this one, love stirs up conflict, but a good dose of hatred covers all wrongs. You get the idea? These are just the opposite of Solomon's wise orders to us. Let's keep going. Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a genius, the wisest of men. The lack of integrity of fools guides them, and the faithful are destroyed by their uprightness. A gossip is a lovely person. Try to be untrustworthy at every turn. Anxiety is great for the heart. Worry as much as you can. Don't bother with choosing your friends carefully. A companion of fools has a blast. Stay close to fools. You may not find knowledge on their lips, but what they, say will what they say will never fail to entertain. An anxious heart is what you're striving for, and envy is your friend forever. A hot-tempered person is a joy to be around. The one who is patient is a bore. A cheerful heart is annoying as all get out, and a crushed spirit is just part of the deal. To do what is right is no fun at all. Who cares what the Lord thinks anyway? And speak often to fools. Use coarse language just like they do. Now we could keep going, but I think you get the point. These reverse words of wisdom are quite ridiculous, aren't they? They're anything but what we would consider to be wise. I mean, we'd never teach our children to adopt one of these Proverbs as a life motto, would we? We'd never knowingly subscribe to this list of craziness, and yet sometimes we find ourselves living as if we actually believe they're true. We don't want to live in fear, and yet there are times when we all get anxious. We don't want to associate with fools, and yet don't we sometimes stick with a toxic relationship for far too long and then get dragged through the muck and mire as a result? We don't want to be vengeful, and yet, haven't we all thought of the perfect comeback to an enemy's snide remark maybe a day or two after the exchange? 
Author and behavioral scientist Daniel Goleman, in his book Social Intelligence, writes that rehashing our social lives may rate as the brain's favorite downtime activity, something like a top-rated TV show. In fact, only when the brain turns to an impersonal task, like balancing a checkbook, do these people circuits quiet down. Now that explains a lot, doesn't it? That's why we think of those great verbal comebacks after the fact, because our brain has been mulling over the exchange ever since it happened. And then bam, three days later, the best comeback ever comes to our mind. But back to my point, we don't wanna live like fools, even as we often allow foolishness to direct our steps. And if there is one area where foolishness seems to run rampant, it's in our relationships. We say foolish things, we do foolish things, we elbow right past wisdom to get our own way. We know it's foolishness, but in the heat of the moment, it somehow looks appealing to us. Well, as you'd expect, the Bible contains beautiful and timely instruction for us, if only we'll choose to be teachable. So earlier, we looked at a few anti-proverbs, so now let's look at some real words of wisdom regarding how to get along well with others. The Proverbs I'm going to read are all drawn from The Message, a translation of the Bible by Eugene Patterson, and there's a bunch of them, so I hope you have nowhere else to be. I even thought about taking some of them out of there because there really are a lot, but in case Rod listens to this, I don't want to get in trouble. So here they are. Start with God. The first step in learning is bowing down to God. Only fools thumb their noses at such wisdom and learning. Don't lose your grip on love and loyalty. Tie them around your neck. Carve their initials on your heart. Earn a reputation for living well in God's eyes and the eyes of the people. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. Run to God. Dear friend, guard clear thinking and common sense with your life. Don't for a minute lose sight of them. They'll keep your soul alive and well. They'll keep you fit and attractive. There's a bonus. Don't walk around with a chip on your shoulder, always spoiling for a fight. Don't try to be like those who shoulder their way through life. Why be a bully? God can't stand twisted souls. It's the straightforward who get his respect. The ways of right living people glow with light. The longer they live, the brighter they shine. But the road of wrongdoing gets darker and darker. Keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. Don't talk out of both sides of your mouth. Avoid careless banter, white lies, and gossip. Keep your eyes straight ahead. Ignore all sideshow distractions. Here are six things God hates, and one more that he loathes with a passion. Eyes that are arrogant, a tongue that lies, hands that murder the innocent, a heart that hatches evil plots, 
feet that race down a wicked track, a mouth that lies under oath, a troublemaker in the family. God's blessing makes life rich. Nothing we do can improve on God. An empty head thinks mischief is fun, but a mindful person relishes wisdom. A good person's mouth is a clear fountain of wisdom. A foul mouth is a stagnant swamp. The speech of a good person clears the air. The words of the wicked pollute it. Moral character makes for smooth traveling. An evil life is a hard life. Good character is the best insurance. Crooks get trapped in their sinful lust. The loose tongue of the godless spreads destruction. The common sense of the godly preserves them. When you're kind to others, you help yourself. When you're cruel to others, you hurt yourself. A life devoted to things is a dead life, a stump. A God-shaped life is a flourishing tree. The good acquire a taste for helpful conversation. Bullies push and shove their way through life. Careful words make for a careful life. Careless talk may ruin everything. A mean person gets paid back in meanness, a gracious person in grace. Slowness to anger makes for deep understanding. A quick-tempered person stockpiles stupidity. A gentle response diffuses anger, but a sharp tongue kindles a temper fire. Hot tempers start fights. A calm, cool spirit keeps the peace. Now, I've just gone through a litany of wisdom, and we've barely even scratched the surface. The Bible in general, and the book of Proverbs specifically, contains a stockpile of helpful insights for getting along well with others. Can you imagine what would happen to our world if even a portion of those who say they follow Christ started living words of wisdom? In these verses I just read, you may have noticed three themes. Trust God, care for others, live as a person of peace. Sounds simple, right? It's not simple, as you probably already know, but once we choose to live this way, how simplified our life can get. What I'd like to do with the time that remains today is work through three common relationship scenarios keeping our three themes in mind. How do we actually live out the three themes we find in the wisdom literature of Scripture? So here's the first scenario. I want to be an authentic, authentic person, but the truth is too hard to admit. Jack and Jill have been dating for quite some time, and now there's talk of marriage. Jack is ready to propose, and Jill is ready to say yes but Jack is harboring a secret. Jill is totally unaware that Jack has an addiction. He sneaks away without telling her, he hoards and hides, and he secretly indulges on a regular basis. He wants to let Jill on, in on this troubling tendency, but he doesn't know how to tell her. What will she think? How will she respond? More importantly, will she still want to be in a relationship with him? We've all been in Jack's shoes, haven't we? 
We hide the fact that we're overeating, overdrinking, overspending, or overcommitting. We hide our true feelings, our true beliefs, and our true fears. We hide the reality about our finances or our spiritual confusion and doubts, our job satisfaction, or even our physical pain, all because we're afraid of what the people who love us will think, or what they will say, or what they will do. So, how do we trust God in this scenario? Before you spend another moment dealing with fear, go to God in prayer. Trust him to hear you, to see your situation, and to guide you in your next steps. Say, Heavenly Father, you know the pain I'm carrying these days, and you know how it can be relieved. I want to lay down this heavy burden and pick up your light burden instead. Will you help me? Will you take this burden from me, any addiction, and give me your peace instead? I surrender my fears to you and also my need to control this situation. Tell me what I need to do in order to be freed from this burden, and I will do it. If I need to make amends, I will make them. If I need to change a habit, I will change it. If I need to admit my need for help, I will admit it. You lead, and I will follow. I will follow with a joyful heart. Maybe God will prompt you to have that conversation or to enlist that help or radically overturn that bad habit. My point is this. Whatever God asks you to do, do it. Trust God with the course of your life. Then care for others as you take the steps God has asked you to take. Consider their feelings. Consider their needs before your own. Be true to your word. Be kind. Emblazon this proverb on your heart and mind. Don't lose your grip on love and loyalty. Tie them around your neck. Carve their initials on your heart. Earn a reputation for living well in God's eyes and the eyes of the people. It's a noble goal, wouldn't you agree? Living a double life is stressful and it's exhausting. Only God knows what steps you need to take in order to become an authentic person. But I bet he'll share them with you. Trust God to tell you what your path needs to look like. Be gentle with those around you as you travel that road. And then live from the place of peace that will exist once you've been courageous enough to confess the hard truth. So here's the second scenario. As much as we hate to admit it, a key relationship in our life has become toxic. Mark and Paul have been friends for years. They used to work together and share similar recreational interests, golf, skiing, and boating. Their wives are friends, and their kids are the same ages. Their families have even vacationed together over the years, but now Mark senses differences in the relationship. He has been growing deeper in his relationship with Christ. Salt has changed some of his ways. The rough language and off-color jokes have faded away, 
as has his habit of drinking a little too much on the golf course. Without really trying to, he has become more invested in his relationship with his wife. He listens better when she wants to talk. He's more tuned in to how to help relieve her stress when her job and home responsibilities collide. He's a more responsible employee. Now that he's realized that conscientious work affords him greater flexibility to work from home and not travel as much. He has tried to talk to Paul about some of these changes, even encouraging him to consider making the same changes in his life, but he just gets brushed off. Paul isn't at all interested. Mark knows that continuing to spend so much of his discretionary time with a guy who isn't as committed to spiritual things, who struggles to practice kindness with his wife, who drinks too much and curses like a sailor when someone upsets him, isn't a great idea. But what's he supposed to say? How do you undo 10 years of a close friendship? Now this is tough stuff. To have to put the brakes on a key friendship, to distance ourselves from someone we care about, it's not easy, ever. So let's be clear on something. Scripture is full of encouragements to look outside our immediate friendships and enfold in community those who are far from Christ. So I'm not suggesting that we should just surround ourselves only with happy people who live for Jesus every minute of the day. There is a definite place in our lives for engaging with those who don't believe in God. Those who are angry with the church, those who curse like sailors and drink too much, and even are mean to their wives. These people need the light of Jesus as well. When we're living in darkness, we need the light. But on the other hand, we can't deny the dozens of saying in, sayings in God's word about being careful in selecting the people we yoke ourselves to. In other words, when you're picking your inner circle, the people that you do life with, the people to whom you look for spiritual guidance and encouragement and care, be very careful about those choices. Choose the company of good men and women. Proverbs says, in other words, when you're weighing who to be close friends with, give the nod to the non-toxic ones. Toxic people make us toxic. Have you ever noticed this? Someone I personally know likes to use this phrase, hurt people hurt people. But good men and good women, those who love God and happily live life for him, those people make us Christ-like, and Christ-like is a good thing to be. So, what do you do when you discover that a key relationship has turned toxic and the other person isn't interested in detoxing? Let's revisit our themes. First, trust God. Pray for wisdom. Pray for insight. Search the scriptures for guidance. Keep an ear open heaven's way. Lay out the entire situation before God, and then listen for cues. Does God want you to say something to the other person? Does he urgently want you to remove yourself from that situation? Does he want you to do nothing? Ask God for direction, and then wait for his response. 
don't take a single step he doesn't explicitly direct you to take. Next, care for others. Sometimes the caring thing we can do for another person is to say, it looks like we're headed in a different direction in life. And while I wish you well along the path you're choosing to take, I've got to take a different path. Once God gives you marching orders, follow them to the letter. But be sure to follow them with kindness at hand. We're told in the Bible to speak truth, but we're told very clearly to do so in love. And finally, live as a person of peace. If God directs you to sever ties with a friend, choose to speak well of that person when questions arise. And they always seem to arise, don't they? You might confide in a spouse or accountability partner the actual truth of the situation, but for the most part, decide in advance how you will characterize the separation and then stick to your guns when asked. When a third party says, hey, what happened with you at so-and-so? You might simply say, you know, we just decided to head in different directions. I'm grateful for your concern, but that's about all there is to report. Two people who are having a disagreement sometimes just need time and space to work through things. It keeps the offended parties from bad-mouthing each other, and it pours water on the gossipy fire that spreads throughout the community. Smart Christ followers refuse to stir up contention. Instead, they let wisdom have its way. They live as people of peace. And here it is, a third scenario, and then we're done. This one is perhaps the toughest of the bunch. It is, I'm not sure how to get past the fact that I have been horribly wronged. On the morning of October 2, 2006, a 32-year-old truck driver named Charlie Roberts entered a tiny one-room schoolhouse in the Amish community of Nickel Mines in Pennsylvania. He was heavily armed, and so his demand was that the men and boys leave immediately, which was followed without question. Mr. Roberts then began tying up the women and girls and told them to stand in line in front of the blackboard. One by one, he shot them in the head, execution style. By the time the police were able to storm the small building and take control of the situation, four girls, ages 6 to 13, had been killed, along with the gunman who turned the gun on himself. Later, a fifth young girl also died, and five other girls were injured by the gunshots. They would survive the attack, but not without lasting effects. The youngest, and also the most severely injured of the survivors, was named Rosanna King, age six at the time of the incident. Her wounds would leave her wheelchair bound, unable to walk or talk ever again. Now we'd all agree that this was a tragedy, and yet the community that had been wronged decided not to let the story end there. As it was well publicized in the weeks and months following the shooting, men, women, and children from Nickel Pines made a point of forgiving Mr. Roberts for his wrongdoing. They embraced the parents of the gunmen named Chuck and Terry Roberts, 
who were horrified by their son's actions that day. Terry Roberts, after being so well-loved by the family of young Rosanna King, over time became close friends with Rosanna, showing up at the little girl's house every single week to read Bible stories to her, to sing to her, and read beloved children's books such as Anne of Green Gables. Was it a tragedy? Undoubtedly, yes. But was it also a triumph? Yes. It was a triumph for the ways of Christ. There's an interesting dynamic surrounding forgiveness, which is this. As Christ followers, when we hear stories like this one, we want to stand up and cheer. Our chests puff out, our eyes water, and our hands can't help but clap. We applaud this type of behavior because deep in our souls, we know it's reflective of Christ. But then the moment we are wronged, instead of reflexively choosing grace and forgiveness, we rush down the path paved by swift justice and say, somebody's got to pay. So let's revisit wisdom's words on this front, shall we? Again, these are from the message. A mean person gets paid back in meanness, a gracious person in grace. Slowness to anger makes for deep understanding. A quick-tempered person stockpiles stupidity. A gentle response diffuses anger, but a sharp tongue kindles a temper fire. Hot tempers start fights. A calm, cool spirit keeps the, pace, keeps the peace. Overlook an offense and bond a friendship. Fasten on to a slight and... Goodbye, friend. A quiet rebuke to a person of good sense does more than a whack on the head of a fool. Don't ever say, I'll get you for that. Wait for God. He'll settle the score. We could continue this litany for an hour, and we wouldn't have covered even half of what God's word has to say regarding turning the other cheek when we're wronged instead of demanding that someone pay. It hurts to be wronged, and for that Amish community, it hurt badly. In a community this size, I guarantee there are people in this room who can relate. You, too, have been hurtly bad. You have been profoundly and deeply wronged. For others of you, maybe the wrongdoing didn't cut quite as deep, but still it left a mark. A physical mark, an emotional mark, a financial mark, maybe a spiritual mark. I want to prepare us for what we'll find as we revisit our themes once more. This time related to the subject of what to do when we are wronged. What does it look like to trust God, to care for others, and to be a person of peace when we've been wronged? Regardless of the level of pain caused by the wrongdoing, Jesus' advice to us is clear. Forgive. Jesus was deeply wronged. The wrong done to him was deeper than any wrong you and I will ever know. And yet his response to his wrongdoers was quick and genuine. He chose from his heart to forgive. A lot of other responses would have seemed justified, 
anger, revenge, disbelief, betrayal, rage, the calling down of the entire angelic host to rain down justice on the Roman crowd. But these aren't the responses he chose. Jesus chose instead to forgive. We're learning to simplify our lives, remember, as it relates to relationships in general and to being wronged in particular. There is no clearer path to stress-free relational simplicity than forgiveness. Quick, sincere, and full forgiveness. Because we have been forgiven much, we can forgive much when we've been wronged. No matter the wrong, no matter the pain, forgiveness can be our course of action as well. This week, we have an opportunity. In each of our relationships, we can choose to practice the three themes we looked at today. Trusting God, caring for others, and living as people of peace. Or we can choose instead to go our own way. Friends, as people talk with us this week, let's ensure they don't talk to a fool. Sound like a good deal? Let's let wisdom find its way into our lives, our hearts, our minds, and our speech. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we graciously thank you for showing us the path we should take, a path rife with grace, mercy, and forgiveness. As we set out to be wise, please open our eyes to the foolish among us who also need your grace. Just as you have extended grace to us, allow us to the strength to extend it to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.